We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, the internet made old again and why AI struggles with the new. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So Sandra, the holidays are coming up. What are we doing? I think we're doing a slightly shorter episode this week. As our listeners might have heard, we're also doing episodes on the impact of Corona on the future of business. So today we'll keep the future this week a little bit shorter, but we'll still have time to talk about a couple of stories. So on Corona Business Insights, we're looking specifically at how COVID-19 impacts on the future of business. While here on the future this week, we will continue with our more long-standing topics around the impact of technology on business, the future of business more generally. COVID-19 will, of course, come up, but we've picked some stories for today which continue topics that we've touched on previously that show up in a new light now that COVID-19 is happening. Okay, let's start in the past, 1999. So Sandra, what happened on the future a long time ago this week? So our first story comes from the MIT Tech Review, and it's asking why does it suddenly feel like 1999 on the internet? Ooh, ooh, I have an answer. Well, one reason is it's slow. It is slow. It's clogged up and slow. If people remember what it was like in 1999, dial-up modems, waiting. The thing was called the worldwide wait for a reason because everything took time. And somehow we're transported into this world because, you know, with everything happening online, work, school, university, internet infrastructure around the world has become under strain. But this is not what the article is about. No, it's not. The article talks about the fact that the pandemic seems to have turned back the clock to a bit of a nicer, kinder time on the web. And it lists a range of things from hundreds of thousands of people on Instagram joining virtual dance parties hosted by DJ Denise, and that includes people like Oprah and Mark Zuckerberg and Michelle Obama, to people trading recipes and chat roulette making a comeback on Google Hangouts, to happy hours and book clubs and collective creativity on Google Sheets and nice emails. So much kinder time on the internet. So the article points out that we're even kind with strangers, that we join meetups, we join online hangouts, we're joining all these things where our friends, strangers, are really having a good time. And that in the time before COVID-19, where we were obsessed with portraying this perfect image of ourselves and photoshopping and filtering our selfies and trying to be all perfect, now we're living in a more scruffy time, more authentic. We can be ourselves a bit more. We're joining yoga classes that are happening in cluttered bedrooms. We're having all these work meetings where people 
are dressed in sweatpants. And so it's a much more authentic, a much more normal world on the internet, not as glossy as previously. So it feels a little bit more like in the early days of the net. So that's what the article says. And here we paused and thought, but But is is it? it? And there's a couple of reasons. Whilst all the things that the article points out are actually happening, and many of us have joined happy hour on the internet or even caught up with friends we haven't seen in ages or extended a hand to colleagues we might have never talked to before to help them out with carrying out activities online. The old world still exists, right? So... Yes, these things are happening and there is a certain excitement about the inevitability of having been socially isolated and people are trying to make the best of it. And the article lists a few of those things that are happening. But at the same time, there's things like the 5G conspiracy. And we're not going to give this, frankly, bullshit any airtime here, but we want to point out that this is still happening. The internet is still a place where this dangerous misinformation is being spread. Indeed, a good example is YouTube having to take down an interview which was watched by more than 65,000 people as it was live streamed peddling conspiracy theories. And let's not forget many of these people watching it actually clicked on online screen buttons, making payments to have their reactions to the conversation be prioritized and be put at the top of the list. There's also the news from last week when both Facebook and Twitter had to ban a video of the Brazilian president endorsing an unproven antiviral drug as a treatment for the coronavirus. And while we commend big tech to actually make a stand at banning some of these new COVID-19 conspiracies, we also want to point out that conspiracies around vaccination, flat earth, the upcoming US elections, and of course climate change are still continuing unabated. Which brings up the issue of big tech itself. One of the things that is very different to the internet of 1999, and let's remember this is before social media and before smartphones, is the fact that big tech is very much still present. Yeah, the internet of 1999 was a place where everyone was creating their own personal web pages where we were hanging out in chat rooms or news bulletins and maybe sending email. The internet of today is very different. It's almost like a collection of colonies. For many people, internet is almost synonymous with Facebook. So rather than having a space like in the old days where everyone in an almost democratic way had the same access, it is now still big tech and Facebook and their algorithms which decide what people get to read, what people get to see, and how what they say is being distributed across those networks. And we've discussed in a previous episode whether coronavirus had killed TechLash, and we'll include the link in the show notes. But let's remember that the ways in which personal data is exploited on the internet, the anti-competitive behaviors of these companies, these are very much still happening. It's just that they don't get the airtime that they used to get prior to the pandemic. And if anything, these companies are starting to play an even bigger role in our lives. As people look for community, there are many people who have not been using Facebook a lot, but are now engaging much more to keep in touch with friends and family or people even who have given up Facebook, who return to it. 
people joining Amazon Prime or other online delivery services and becoming part of an online community, that might be very difficult to quit once the pandemic is over. And we'll put a link in the show notes to an article in the New York Times, which has some interesting data about how our use of the internet itself has changed. So one interesting insight is that we're moving to using websites more, so bigger screen devices rather than necessarily apps. Video apps, yes, but for Facebook, for example, the use of facebook.com is up by 27%, whereas the app is holding steady, more or less. But yes, Facebook use is certainly up, and so is Netflix and YouTube. So will it last is the question. Whether we're talking short term, is it still going to be the case another two months into this pandemic? And will this still be the case two years from now? So my view on does this outlast the pandemic as such, right? Once we have a vaccine and all of this is over, and my view is no, it won't. Maybe some things will stick, some apps will have come up on the back of this, some services will have gained, big tech might be bigger than ever changes that might have happened without the pandemic as well, we don't know. But will we all be in a happy, clappy place online after this is over? Probably not. And we've had Adam Comrade Scott in a previous episode, and we'll include the link in the show notes. He was talking very much about this cycle of panic and neglect, that everything changes whilst we're in a crisis, such as this pandemic. But once the crisis has subsided, we very, very quickly return to our normal habits. There is also the possibility that a year and a half, two years down the line, we're still in this crisis in some way, shape or form, say we do not find a vaccine or the economies don't recover quickly enough. And then the question is, would it still hold in that case? You make a good point, but I don't think we have to look into the future quite that far, because I think we will see on a much shorter timeline, give it a month or two months, this novelty factor will wear off and... Our colleague Mike Seymour has just written a piece for the SBI COVID-19 portal where he makes the argument, and we'll put the link in the show notes, that at the moment we're very forgiving. Everyone had to move hastily their office into their bedrooms. So we put up with, you know, poorly positioned cameras that shoot up people's noses and show the ceiling of a cluttered bedroom people joining business meetings in sweatpants, and that is ha-ha funny for the first few weeks. But soon we will realize that this is the only place where we're now doing business. We will still have to make money. We will still have to portray a professional image for our businesses. And so this Wild West early experimental phase will give way to a much more professional conduct online where what is being celebrated in the MIT article will very much give way to more considerate, to more measured dealings in Zoom meetings, but also in the way in which we use the internet to communicate. And there's another thing that might come into play if we look a month, two months down the line, which is we're still very much at the beginning of this pandemic. And once the grim reality of both the human impact and the economic impact of this pandemic come into play, people might not be as inclined to join dance parties or to exchange recipes or spend time doing DIY stands for their devices that they can use around the house. Sometimes even from Lego, we're hearing. Is yours on a Lego? It is on a Lego stand, yes. Is it now? <laughs> Excellent. 
But we also want to make the point that the kinder, nicer world of the internet, the exciting world of the corona lockdown that is being celebrated in this article, while it exists, it is a bubble that only contains certain people, but not other groups. We spoke at length in one of our previous episodes about the loneliness epidemic, as identified by the former U.S. Surgeon General, who estimated that loneliness was the most prevalent ailment within the community. And this is at the time where, of course, we were all connected, but we were still also all going to work and going to spend time in social environments. And in the U.S., more than half the CEOs were reporting a feeling of loneliness. The U.K.'s prime minister had appointed a minister for loneliness after the report had showed that more than 9 million people in the U.K. were feeling lonely often or always. And the health effects associated with that were tremendous. And so we want to point out that many people who have been lonely at work, for example, have been excluded from activities, but were still present in the office pre this crisis might now disappear completely from view. And so people who are not included in these online activities, be it because they are quite introverted or they find it difficult to connect with others anyway, are easily forgotten when it comes to organizing all these activities online. And then there are those who just don't have the time, the capacity or the knowledge to participate. Single parents looking after their children who have lots of schoolwork, people with elderly parents or relatives who have to care for them and are worried about them contracting COVID-19. There is a lot of people who do not have the time, the energy, the knowledge or the technology to participate on what is arguably now an exciting time to be online. Indeed. And the argument back then was that we really lack the depth of quality of interpersonal relationships. We don't know each other well enough or we don't get to talk about our feelings and our interactions are often much more superficial. There's very much a danger of that getting increasingly worse with our current situation. And so what we want to say is we hope the article is right and we can actually sustain this and make the Internet a more inclusive, a happier and kinder place. But we would also say that we all have to think about those who we might not have seen online to try and include them and to do something about the rampant spread of conspiracy theories and misinformation and the proliferation of online scamming to pressure big tech to uphold what they have now shown in this crisis, that it is actually possible to take some of this material offline and do this for the other spread of misinformation as well, climate change and the like. There was another story we wanted to discuss today, and that has to do with artificial intelligence. And a really interesting article from ZDNet that talks about AI running smack up against the big data problem in the COVID-19 diagnosis. So we've often talked about AI on this podcast, and the real successes were in image recognition, in recognizing cancer cells, for example, in CT images or X-rays. So that's a real stronghold for AI. So it was somewhat surprising to see that this is exactly what scientists are now struggling with, building the kind of algorithms to do these diagnoses for COVID-19. At first, it would seem straightforward that researchers could be using AI to diagnose COVID-19 from chest X-rays and from CT scans. 
But there is one big difference to what AI was able to do in the case of cancers. And that difference is data. So in a world where we have lots of image data that shows healthy lungs, for example, and cancerous lungs, and we have doctors who can actually label those pictures and prepare it for these deep learning networks to do the image recognition, this works really well. But that data is not readily available in a pandemic with a new kind of illness that is unfolding in full force. So there have been two problems to getting AI to successfully diagnose COVID-19. And that is, on the one hand, there is very little data available to begin with. There's not a very large data set of x-rays or of CT scans that show COVID-19 infected lungs, nor is this data formatted in a way that makes it readily available for the machine learning algorithm. Every single hospital has data that is formatted in different ways, that is available through different channels and with different conditions. So the article reports on initial successes in China, where researchers were able to train networks on a few hundred or a few thousand of these images. But let's not forget that in order to get the quality and the precision required, we need thousands and thousands of these images. And they are not readily available from just the one source, but there's also no infrastructure in place at this point to pull together more data. And there's also not the time available in hospitals to collect data for these research efforts at a time when saving lives is the pressing issue. And let's remember, and we've discussed this previously on the podcast, that these systems need data that is also labeled. That means that you have large numbers of doctors, of radiologists who need to look at these images and make annotations that then can fine-tune the way the machine learning algorithm learns what the disease looks like in various patients. And so the places in which these pictures are currently produced, the doctors simply don't have the time to annotate the pictures to train these algorithms. And while some people might say, wait a minute, there's also so-called unsupervised learning techniques where AI might learn from pictures that are not labeled, that is correct, but those algorithms need even larger quantities of data, which again are not available. So in time, these algorithms, of course, will be able to diagnose COVID-19, but this will take, first of all, some investment in a global infrastructure for sharing these images, and secondly, a lot of time. So paradoxically, they'll be available probably when we no longer need them as urgently as we do now. And so again, this shows that AI, while really well able to predict outcomes on past data, when we're confronted with novel phenomena and data is simply not available, this technology is not readily useful. And interestingly, we see similar issues crop up in other places where AI doesn't have a past data set to draw on, and we're seeing a similar problem with facial recognition. It was never designed to recognize people with face masks on. So even systems like the ones on Google's Pixel 4, which were built less than a year ago, really struggle to recognize a person that has a face mask on. Same thing, of course, holds for Apple's Face ID. And whilst for face recognition, there are 
easier workarounds. And indeed, in China, we've seen companies that have asked their employees to share photos of themselves wearing face masks. And based on that photo, companies have created thousands of simulated images of fake people in masks to be able to then train machine learning algorithms to recognize people with masks on. Researchers from Wuhan released a real-world masked face recognition data set to help people around the world do this. They've got 50,000 images of 10,000 fake people and about 90,000 images of 500 real people. So once again, this shows the limitations of AI when we do not have data readily available. However, we do want to point out that we can do something to prepare for the future in order to break the cycle of panic and neglect. And that would be to bring in place a global infrastructure for data sharing that protects privacy, but allows researchers in a pandemic, in a situation like now, to pull together data much more quickly and therefore train algorithms to be used at a time when it's actually needed. And we also want to point out that there are some real uses for AI when it comes to fighting COVID-19. Let's remember AI is helping in this pandemic. It's helping with discovery of drugs and understanding how the virus works, since we have good previous data on similar viruses that can model the ways in which this virus interacts with drugs or interacts with people's bodies. We also have good modeling around how viruses spread in communities. So AI has helped understand how such viruses would spread through communities and help contain that spread. So it once again shows that AI is all about the data and where we have previous data that we can bring to bear on the problem, AI is immensely useful on the more novel aspect of a problem such as COVID-19. It takes quite a while for these algorithms to be trained and data to be available. But that's all we have time for today. We wish you happy holidays. Tune into Corona Business Insights and, of course, the future this week. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you soon. On the future next week. This week? Yes, but next week. On the future this week. Next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was the future this week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.